if we're unclear about that, even if you don't agree that, we, you know, you totally convinced we lack free will, but there's an open question, then maybe we should avoid intentionally harming individuals and society on the presupposition that we have this thing called free will that we've been literally philosophers debating for over 2,000 years since the ancient Greeks. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a more knowledgeable life, a happy life, a good life. What about a free life? A life with free will. A free, a free life. So Rudy, that is the question. Do you have free will? Is there such a thing as free will or is it an illusion? Are you asking me my opinion right now? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough question. It's a tough question to ask, and we ask it on this episode. Does free will? We do. That's what this is about. Does free will exist? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think Greg thinks about free will? Free will feels intuitive. And so it's been assumed for a long time. Like we hear our train of thoughts, we make decisions all the time. But then I think around, I want to say like the early 1800s or late 1700s, where there was this question of, wait a minute, how do you explain free will? Because we are physical beings. We're also animal creatures. How would you explain that everything in the world exists according to cause and effect, except the human being? And so those questions and the neuroscience has started to push us in the direction of like, this idea of free will might not really be there, that your thoughts, your speech, your actions all have a causal factor. Now, it's a difficult thing to prove either way, but all of the evidence seems to be going more in the direction that we don't have free will. And Greg's work, our guest talks about the implications on a social and even a criminal justice about the way we think about free will. So his, his, it's a very cool episode, the way he's taking it, the implications of it. Yeah, as somebody who's obsessed with control, you know, I, I bring up my fortune cookie movie on this and my personal struggles with control, how I want to control everything. It's a fascinating episode, especially as a lawyer, especially about the implications of what he's discussing in the criminal justice system. This is one where I think people are going to need to listen to more than once and truly think about whether or not free will actually exists. One of the things that I like about this discussion is that if you take into account just some humility about how it is that you are you, it is the year in which you were born, the family into which you were born, your first language, the economic bracket you were born into, the geography. I mean, there are so many things, your birth order, right? There are so many things that bring you to who you are that are not in your control, but they're definitely part of the way in which you view the world. And when you have this humility and accept that there are these causal factors, it can allow you to, you know, um, like what we like to talk about the art of dialogue, it gives an openness to the way in which you respond to other people's view of the world. Yeah, and I think it I think it makes you more of an empathetic person too. To like yeah. whether or not you you believe in absolutes or oh, free will hundred uh, percent exists or or you know fate hundred percent exists or their causal fact, et cetera, et cetera. Just if you think about implications of this episode, I do think it'll make you more of an empathetic person because it makes you think. Wait a minute, how, why did that person make that poor decision, or why did that person make this decision, or why did that person say that? Where did they come from? What's their life history? What what was their background? What did they go through? I believe this episode will make people more empathetic, and empathy is what we really need in the world today. Absolutely. 
Okay. Now let's ask the question with Greg Caruso, the philosophy professor, writer, also fantastic TED talk on this, the dark side of free will. I'm going to go ahead and link that in the show notes, but we are going to explore, does free will exist? Greg, welcome to Good is in the Details. We're going to be talking about your work on free will today. Let's start out with defining this debate. What is the debate around do we have free will? Right. So philosophers tend to have a number of different definitions of free will. That's part of the problem, I think, is that sometimes people are talking past each other. But I have a very precise definition that I like to use. Essentially, I define free will as the kind of control and action that's required for individuals and agents to be morally responsible in a really specific sense. So if you have free will, you have the kind of control and action that's required for you to be justifiably praised and blamed, punished and rewarded. So there's this tight connection between free will and moral responsibility, as I define it. And the reason I think it's a, it's a good way to start is it doesn't presuppose any of the positions from the outset. It doesn't exclude any of the positions. It's compatible with, you know, you being a skeptic about this kind of free will or you being what's called a compatibilist or a libertarian about this kind of free will. And it's also tied to things that really matter. So like if we don't, if we have this kind of free will, it impacts our practices, not just our everyday practices like can I get angry at my wife should I blame her can we punish and reward people but also the law and criminal justice and a whole bunch of different areas so I start out by defining free will as that kind of control that individuals would have that would make them subject to things like praise and blame condemnation uh, resentment indignation all the way up to what's called retributive punishment and so if we have this kind of free will, then we could punish people because they deserve it. We could blame people because they deserve it. And if we lack this kind of free will, then we have to reconsider our everyday practices. Hey, Greg, as a lawyer, I understand the, the basic definition oh, yeah. of um, retributivism. I think you just defined it. But could you just give a very simple definition of it for the simpletons like me that listen to this show? Actually, I'm probably the only simpleton that listens to it. Everyone else is intelligent. But just for the good of the order. Yeah, right. So retributivism, and retributivists maintain that, you know, absent any excusing conditions like mental insanity or some sort of reason that we might... Emergency, et cetera, et cetera. Wrongdoers morally deserve to be punished for their wrongdoing. And by dessert here, I don't mean deserts or uh, what we have after dinner. Dessert is something like, you know, the individual deserves in some basic sense to be punished because they engaged in some wrongdoing. And this punishment is usually seen as being purely backward looking. So since they did some kind of wrong, they deserve to have some retributive justice done to them. And in this case, the punishment is usually thought to be intrinsically good. So good without reference to any forward looking benefit. So like one way to think about it is Immanuel Kant had this really interesting thought experiment. He says, imagine you have a desert island. And there's a society and they're going to disband and they're going to all the members of the society are going to scatter around the world. But there's one remaining prisoner in jail and he's a murderer. And would it be just to execute this person before you left the island? Now, Kant thought the only fitting punishment for murder was death. You don't have to agree with that. But that was his view. And the idea here would be, does this individual deserve this punishment? Now, Think about it. You're not punishing this person because it's going to keep people safe. There's no one left to keep safe. You wouldn't be punishing this person to deter crime. There'd be no one left to deter. 
you wouldn't be punishing this person to make them better, that is, for their moral improvement, because in this case, you'd be murdering them. The question is fundamentally, do they deserve it? Do they deserve retribution? And so retributivism is the idea that paid people basically deserve some sort of harm done to them. And that could be everything from pain, deprivation, loss of liberty, all the way up to the death penalty. And so if you have this kind of moral responsibility, which is called basic dessert moral responsibility, then the answer would be yes. And if we lack it, then retributivism would have to be rejected. Really quickly, just so you guys can get a sense of sometimes um, what I do in negotiations very, very quickly. Because sometimes when I'm, in, I'm negotiating a contract and I'll be like, well, we need, we need this provision to say this. Why? The law already says that this is allowed. Why do you need this provision? Well, what if the law changes? So, Greg, I'll go right back at you in your example. Is this a magical desert island that nobody else can land on? Is this, a, is this a, in a place where nobody can get to? You're supposing that the circumstances remain the same, that, this, that no one will ever be on that desert island. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And honestly, that's an actual negotiation yeah. thing that I use when I'm arguing stuff. We don't need to go down that road, but just thought that'd be interesting for the lawyer nerds out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely an artificial thought experiment. <laughs> um, if we don't bring into it those kind of considerations, well, we have to worry about, and I call those forward-looking considerations, like, well, what if yeah. someone else discovers the island? Would they be put at risk? Then you're bringing in forward-looking reasons for punish. So basically, if you think about it, if you say, why punish this person? There are generally two types of reasons. There's a lot more in the philosophical literature, but one is they deserve it. And the other would be something like, it keeps us safe, it's good for society, it's going to deter crime. Those are what I call forward-looking reasons. So retributivism is assuming just the backward-looking justification, and it would say, regardless of any forward-looking goods, this person deserves it. That's perfect. And the point of your book, and one of the things that we're going to discuss today, is that you argue against this type of, yeah, I don't know if it's forward-looking or retributivism, and you, you offer up an alternative. Yeah. Like that's, that's, the, that's the whole premise of the book here. Like you're like, okay, this is the way things have been done, but I want to offer up another way of thinking about it. Is that correct? Yeah, so retributivism has historically and still currently provided one of the primary justifications for legal punishment. And in the criminal justice system, one of the primary reasons we incarcerate people is because we, we are retributively punishing them. If it turns out retributivism is unjustified, as I argue in the book, then we would have to revise our criminal justice practices and our whole legal system. And so I think there, there's multiple reasons why we might be skeptical of retributive justice or why we might want to reject it. But as we started the conversation, one of my primary concerns is about free will. If we lacked free will, then the kind of justification that's needed for retributivism, i.e. the notion of desert, would be undermined. And so retributivism would be undermined. But I also in the book actually lay out, people tend not to ask me about these other arguments. I lay out six arguments for why we should reject retributivism. And some of them have nothing to do with free will. So even if you even if you think agents are free, there might be other reasons to be concerned. But the primary philosophical one is about free will that I Correct. And to sum it down into a little nugget, I think the argument here is that we don't really have free will. Therefore, this uh, the way our criminal justice system is currently set up is unfair. Yeah. 
Right. So, so great. I mean, now let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, because I define free will as the kind of control required for basic dessert more responsibility, i.e. the kind of responsibility that is primarily what retributivism is based in, the idea that individuals deserve in the purely backward-looking, non-consequential sense to be praised, blamed, punished, and rewarded. So if we don't have free will, that justification's undermined. And if, to the extent we want our legal practices to be justified, we should revise our legal practices. Could somebody say that the whole point of arguing that we don't have free will is to bring down our criminal justice system? Meaning, well, how do we make it so that, you know, punishing people because they quote unquote deserve it is unfair? What if people don't have agency? What if they don't have, is, is maybe, maybe the whole point of arguing of that? Because it's impossible to say whether or not we have free will or not. Or is it, Greg? Um, I think that the best philosophical arguments point us in the direction of saying that we can't justify free will. However, I just wanted to, I don't want to complicate things too much at the beginning, but I have a secondary argument that says, look, even if you say the issue can't be settled, say like, you know, philosophers have been debating free will for 2000 years and, you know, there's no general consensus, although I think the most rational view is to, to be a skeptic about free will. If you don't agree, we still may want to reject retributive punishment because well, think about what it means to punish someone, especially in the context of the criminal justice system. We're inflicting a whole lot of harm on that individual. We're restricting their liberty. We're removing them from their loved ones. We're often depriving families of a source of income. There's a whole lot of harm. So if we, there's a good moral principle that says we should refrain from intentionally harming people unless we're justified. And so the reason that people use and the law uses to justify that harm is that the individual deserves it. If we're unclear about that, even if you don't agree that we, you know, you totally convinced we lack free will, but there's an open question, then maybe we should avoid intentionally harming individuals and society on the presupposition that we have this thing called free will that we've been literally philosophers debating for over 2,000 years since the ancient Greeks. So if that's a questionable assumption, maybe we shouldn't predicate our primary justification for inflicting legal punishment on individuals on that assumption. One of the issues is that I think we perceive this specialness about the human being. And this can also be from Western theology, that man is in charge of the world and not simply just a part of the world. And so we understand causal factors when it comes to physical objects and even animals. But then when it comes to us, we're reluctant to say that we're also caused because then that would dethrone us as humans. I also have uh, I have my own answer to that, but the, I, I, I can't wait to hear Greg's. I, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two primary reasons people hold on to it. I think one is from a first-person experiential perspective. We feel free. Like, we don't feel causally determined. We feel like our decisions are up to us. I feel like it's I could have done otherwise. Like, I chose to pick this T-shirt, but I feel right now like I could have chosen a different t-shirt. And so there's a, a very strong, what, what philosophers call phenomenological sense of free will, that we feel free. Now, that's not a good argument. I mean, I feel myself free, therefore I am free is, is not necessarily <laughs> an But it's probably one reason why people hold on to it. I think the other, Gwendolyn pointed to a little bit, I think there's been an important theological sense to the notion it's That's played it. a big cultural role. I mean, especially within Catholicism and Christianity. Like, if we don't have free will, why would God condemn people to hell and heaven for eternity? Bingo. Just 
And then I think the there'd be no purgatory, right, Greg? I mean, what's the what's the point of purgatory? What's yeah. the point? Obviously, you, we have free will yeah. because there's a purgatory, there's a heaven, the good, the bad. The, I mean, the, to me, the reason why it's still here and it's still a part of United States history and the United States legal system is because, notwithstanding whatever we say in the First Amendment, we still have a lot of religious components yeah. in the United States of both our laws and thinking. Sorry, I didn't go ahead. No, no, I think I think that religious kind of worldview penetrates our beliefs quite pervasively, especially in the West where it's been shaped into our thinking. I think it goes also to that notion you alluded to that we're special. We're somehow special and outside the causal nexus of the world. Humans like to make ourselves the exception to the rule in almost every case. True with consciousness and belief in dualism, belief in life after death, and maybe belief in free will, kind of in many cases classed together that somehow we're unique and different. But I would also say the probably the third reason, so the first being our experience, the second being kind of cultural and theological and specialness kind of considerations. The third, I think, is our practices. Like, we're really concerned that if we weren't free, what would the implications be? And so part of what I've been trying to do in my work is make the world safer for the book, for this view that we might not have free will. I call myself an optimistic free will skeptic. So I think it's possible not only to live without believing in free will, but there might be actually some benefits to doing so. But people don't see that immediately. They tend to think that, well, how can I blame my child when they do something wrong? How could I hold my spouse accountable? What could I do about criminals? And so I've been trying to solve those problems to make people realize that there are other alternatives to addressing these kind of interpersonal concerns and legal concerns other than presupposing the idea of desert or basic desert or free will or retribution. Yeah, the law can work if we look at it as a causal factor in order to curb behavior. So for example, when drinking and driving was such an epidemic in the 80s, then they introduced a new set of laws that were far more punitive that kept people from drinking and driving. I mean, not 100%, but it definitely curbed the problems with drinking and driving. So just because we say that there's no free will, that doesn't mean that there can't be any kind of a legal system. You can introduce new factors in order to alter behavior. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's even clearer in parenting in a way. So like if you've had a child and they do something wrong at school, one of the reasons we might punish them, take away their cell phone or give them some sort of a punishment would be in part to curb their behavior moving forward. That presupposes a causal connection between me introducing some sort of influence now and its ability to affect future behavior, right? What we're trying to do is shift their scales in some way moving forward that when they consider doing something similar in the future, they consider possible consequences and outcomes and then make a different decision or deliberate differently or decide differently based on this new influence. I should just say, because I, I know there might be some philosophers out there listening, there's a whole view called compatibilism that would say you could still believe that everything is causally determined and still think there's free will. So those people wouldn't be too worried about this. They would they would somehow think that you can reconcile let me just say what determinism is real quick, maybe for, for listeners. So determinism is the thesis that facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature entail there's only one fixed future. So like if you keep the laws of nature fixed and you keep everything leading up to a particular moment in time fixed, like my childhood, how I was raised, my brain chemistry, 
all of that exactly the same up until the moment where I'm looking in my closet deciding what to wear today. Determinism entails there's only one thing that could follow from that collection of events. It used to be that people felt that if determinism is true, we lack free will because either we lack the ability to do otherwise. You know, I tend to think I could have chosen to have something else for breakfast or I could have chosen to wear something different today. If determinism is true, that's an illusion. Or sometimes people feel that if determinism is true, I'm not the appropriate source of my actions. My actions sort of drain back into antecedent events, even prior to when I was born, like the laws of nature and things occurring going back to the Big Bang. I tend to think determinism is incompatible with free will, but there is a view out there that says, oh, no, you can still think everything is determined and yet we're free. That's called compatibilism. Um, I think there's reasons for rejecting that view, but I just want to mention there is that view out there. Yeah, I guess, I, you know, I've never really thought about it in terms like this. I guess I think I am a compatible, I think I'm a compatible person. In, uh, is, that, is that what we're talking about here? Compatible, compatible, whatever it is. Yeah, I think. You know, in our last episode on The Godfather, Rudy, you were giving an example of the immigrant story and you made reference to Middle Eastern immigration. And you said that it was because I come from a family of immigrants from the Middle East. So that would be an example of thinking. It seems like free will, your thinking is all of your own, but actually you were able to relate it back to another cause. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the lens that I see through you know, life is definitely colored by all the things and all, all the events, world events. I write about this a lot, yeah. right? Like I write about control, Greg. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with control. I write about it in both nonfiction and in fiction and how I'm a person that constantly struggles with control. And I'd like to convince myself that I have control. And that's where the root of all of my problems is control. Whereas if I just accept the fact that I have no control other than my own quote unquote actions or reactions, seems however possibly. If you take the no free will argument to the extreme, even that, even my reaction or action to having no control is caused by something else. So literally I have zero control even over my own reactions and actions, or am I, am I taking it too far? It depends on what people mean by control, right? To a certain extent, I want to make, I, I, even as a free will skeptic or someone who denies free will, I do think we have degrees of control So like, I think there's a difference between an eye twitch and choosing to make a cup of coffee this morning, right? Mm, Okay, explain. So an eye twitch, um, one doesn't even intentionally choose to do, right? Like it's an involuntary action. It's like sneezing or the various states of my liver right now are operating in a way that I have no conscious control over. No one would claim to have free will over that. You might think you have free will over choosing to make a cup of coffee. This is gets to your kind of you know claim. I would say there is a kind of control there that's different than an eye twitch. Like I'm choosing to make the cup of coffee. I could have chosen to make tea, or I could have chosen to you know have a glass of water. But the determinist would argue that that choice itself is causally determined because the factors that go into making that choice. Your desire for coffee, your preference for coffee over tea, your chemical addiction to caffeine, your taste preferences, your routine, your habits, all of those things have been causally conditioned over time, such that this morning when I'm deliberating 
whether or not to make tea or coffee, I'm going to choose coffee. Like, I'm just not a tea person. I always choose coffee. I've loved coffee for years. I drink a couple cups a day. I would say that that's different than having an eye twitch, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's immune from causal influence and it's not causally determined by antecedent events. So like, I'm wearing a black t-shirt today. I tend to wear black a lot, you know? And sometimes people make fun of me for that or, or point it out. And you might think like, okay, why do I have the black t-shirt? Well, one might be I only, you know, my options are limited. I have lots of black t-shirts. But let's go to the moment I'm in the store when I'm choosing to purchase a t-shirt. And my wife says, here, try on these yellow or orange t-shirts. You need to diversify your wardrobe. So now I'm looking at myself in the dressing room and I'm trying on the different. Now, this seems like a paradigm example of a free choice. It's not an eye twitch. It's not some, a doctor hitting my knee with a mallet or anything like that where the causal connection's obvious, right? People would just say, you don't have free will in those cases. What I would suggest is, okay, let's think about it. I put on the black t-shirt and then I put on a yellow t-shirt and I look at myself in the mirror. Um, I look at myself in the yellow t-shirt and I go, oh, I feel like a clown. I don't like the way I look in this. And then I put on the black t-shirt. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to buy that. <laughs> now think about this. Did I control that reaction? Or am I just aware of having that reaction? Like, did I control the way I felt when I looked at myself in yellow? I would argue, no, like the reactions themselves are byproducts of all your prior experiences, how you were raised, what region of the world you grew up in, what, you know, maybe even your personal psychology of, of you know, people maybe are more depressive, might like darker colors. People who are more outgoing might be gravitating toward more vibrant colors. There might be a psychology behind preference. But also, I think regionally, I grew up in New York City and I live in the Northeast. If I was raised in Hawaii, maybe I wouldn't wear black all the time. <laughs> or maybe it had to do with my peer group and fashion influences on me as a child or you know maybe i listened to too much lou reed or maybe you know maybe I hung out in nightclubs in new york too long i i don't know i can't or, or maybe uh maybe you're partially colorblind and you you fear matching uh colors because i'm horrible at that matching be, colors. horrible i'm yeah. super outgoing i'm also punk rock and i love goth yeah, right. and dark wave blah 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 that's not, and i live in la yeah. The reason why I'm always wearing black is because I'm partially colorblind and I have a fear yeah. of walking outside of the house and not matching, which I'm sure I do all the time. Anyway. So you just think about but that. to your point, you, don't, you didn't choose to be colorblind, and I would argue you didn't choose necessarily or freely. I should say you didn't freely control your fear of being somehow wearing a outrageously paired outfit or something. That's controlled or determined, I would say, by people's reactions to you in the past where you had mismatching socks or people laughing, those kind of things influence us. So I'm, I'm fear adverse. I, I want to make sure I don't have that happen to me again. That weighs on me combined with my deliberative process. Plus I'm lazy and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time deliberating on what to wear every day. So it's like a uniform. Those things all go into it. But I would say you don't really necessarily have any ultimate control. That's the thing, ultimate control. You place, there's some control in that these things are going through my psychological mechanisms. Whereas when I have an eye twitch, nothing's going even through my beliefs and desires. That's just like straight stimulus response. Yeah. There is more links in the chain. I, I, I get this. I really do. I really do. And, and I understand. I mean, I know the focus of your book is on criminal law. I know the, I know the focus is, you know, how we need to rethink. I, I totally get that. But what about, what about a person who just says, 
I'm tired of the way my life is going. I am a criminal or I am dealing with these drugs or I am doing this or I'm doing that. I want to change and I'm going to make a change and I'm going to become, you know, um, a completely different person. Like, like for example, um, you know, there's, there's just countless cases of people who have, you know, taken control over their own lives and have changed things because they made choices for the, uh, for the better. One of the great examples of this, and I've studied, uh, I've kind of studied this um, very well-known actor, uh, Danny Trejo. There you go, Danny Trejo. I don't know if you've ever listened or heard about his story or heard about his life. It goes towards the argument of what you're saying, like the way his environment was, Danny Trejo's environment, what he grew up in and what he was surrounded in, all the horrible things that happened to him and he was around with. Of course he wound up in prison, a heroin addict. Like that happened. It did. While he was in the pit of hell in solitary confinement, facing like possible death of an armed guard, he made a choice and, you know, became sober and became this, um, this model prisoner and really took quote unquote ultimate control, whatever you want to talk about, of his life. And now look where Danny Trejo is. Like, it's an amazing story. I'm sure you can argue against, well, no, he really had no control or no, this happened or that happened. But I don't know. Like, I just. I would say that the reason why either he or anyone in, in these various cases end up changing is itself a byproduct of other influences that come into play. So this is a little tricky, but just let me simplify okay. it for a second and then we can get back to Please. addiction or something. But like, let's just say I desire chocolate. I believe there's chocolate in the kitchen. You know, given my inner scales, my psychology, I choose to, to eat the chocolate. That all seems determined because I didn't control the desire. I didn't control the belief that there's chocolate. Let's say, to use your example, one day I say, I got to stop eating so much chocolate. And I go join Chocoholics Anonymous. I attend some Chocoholics meetings. I ultimately get control of my cravings. And now I don't need so much chocolate. That seems to be like what your examples are getting at. Here's what I would ask. Where did the new desire, i.e. the desire to stop desiring chocolate, come from? I would say that desire itself was probably causally determined by, like, so my, maybe my wife said something about my weight. Maybe my doctor told me my cholesterol was too high. Maybe someone screamed out an insult as they drove past me on the street. And I say, I got I to gotta change my diet. So think of it like scales in my brain. Before, my desire for chocolate's really high, and so I constantly find myself eating it. Now my scales are changing, maybe because I hit rock bottom in life, maybe because I find myself in prison, maybe because I read something in the newspaper. And now my desire to stop desiring chocolate is greater than my desire for chocolate. And so then I go and I seek steps to recondition myself. But I would argue that itself isn't a proof of free will. It's just proof that some other set of influences have effectively altered my inner psychological states such that now I recondition myself. Free will skeptics don't deny that people change or that it's capable of finding yourself in a set of circumstances and then changing course in life. But the argument would be that's not because of free will. That's because of a set of either psychological properties. Maybe you have strong fortitude. Maybe you've had good luck in life. Maybe some new influences. Or maybe you find yourself near death in prison due to a heroin addiction. And you realize that those things are starting to change my set of desires and my beliefs about 
what I need to do to succeed in life. And now those new influences are changing the course of my life. Very helpful. Yeah. Excellent, excellent explanation. Thank you, Greg. It's very, very helpful. I think this was a great discussion. Um, I think I love the way Greg just wrapped that up by uh, destroying what I, what I, what I had asked, or just he just answered. Like you're, you're a great teacher. Okay. I can already tell you're a wonderful teacher, Greg. You're a great teacher. Okay. One of the nice things that I really like about this discussion on free will or being a free will skeptic is that when you take into consideration all of the things that make you you like the time in which you were born, the family in which you were born into, the body into which you were born into, your abilities or lack of abilities, so many things that make you, you. And when you understand all of those factors, it gives you a lot of humility in recognizing that you have a point of view of the world that is the result of things that were outside of your control. And then it makes you more empathetic when you're listening to somebody else who has a different point of view. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of my current work is this idea that like once we abandon the belief in free will and also the notion of just desserts and people justly deserve this hardship or this punishment or this blame, we could look more clearly at the causes and more deeply into the systems that shape individuals and their behavior. And that could lead us to adopt more humane and effective practices and policies. I think the notion of just desserts, like someone justly deserves this bad thing because they did something, often leads to excessive punitive practices. It's also, as you point out, often corrosive to our interpersonal relationships. Like moral anger often ends up being counterproductive if your goal is moral improvement or safety or reconciliation. And so I think that once you recognize the role, even forget about determinism, even the role that luck plays in our lives, like therefore the grace of luck go I. If I were born in a third world nation thrown into a situation of conflict and I'm 16 and I have the option of picking up this machine gun and killing this group of people or joining the other side and killing this group or trying to remain neutral and have my hands cut off and my family mutilated, I think I'd be capable of murder. And I find it very hard to sometimes morally blame individuals for doing what I would end up probably doing if I were exactly in that circumstance and exactly that situation. In fact, if I literally was exactly that person in that situation, I literally would be that person and would make that decision. And so what it ends up making you focus more on is changing the circumstances instead of blaming the individuals, fixing the context in which in your crime occurs. So like one of my big things on crime is that it's less about the person and more about circumstances and what I call the social determinants of crime, poverty, low socioeconomic status, abuse, domestic violence, housing insecurity, mental illness, access to healthcare, education, even environmental health. If you end up seeing that the people who end up in prison often are, are byproducts of circumstances that drove that criminal behavior, rather than it being a matter of individual freedom and responsibility, you end up focusing your policy and funding interventions that try to address those social determinants of crime, rather than just blaming people on the tail end and punishing people on the tail end. And I think that is a more effective and more humane way to go about addressing criminal behavior in society. And it's less reactive and more proactive, right? Instead of waiting for bad things to happen and then using retributive justice to justify mass incarceration, 
um, which is what we have in the United States, we end up addressing more proactive interventionist programs that target the things that are driving systemic inequality, poverty. Just think of, I'll end with this. Think of one statistic that I think always strikes home with me because it it seems to be impactful for people because, you know, people could think of violent crime and they have an image of people who are commit violent crime. But incarceration rates for women are on the rise in the United States. And 85 to 90 percent of women that are in prison today in the United States, almost 90 percent, have previously been victims of violence of some kind. Domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse. You can't get a more direct causal connection, right? And this like 90% is pretty damn strong a causal connection in the sense that this is not to say if you're a victim, you're going to be a uh, you know, criminal, but it says 90% of those women who do find themselves in conditions of incarceration have been driven there primarily because they've been themselves victimized. It has an impact on their psychology. It affects deployment rates. So people who have been victimized or sexually assaulted or domestic violence have a harder time holding steady jobs. Well, you might commit petty crimes as a byproduct of lacking steady income. And so that could lead to incarceration. Often there's a co-addiction issue. You might be in a, in a relationship where there's an addiction compounding problem with violence and you may commit crimes as a byproduct of Anyway, there's all of these reasons why the statistics are what they are. But instead of blaming women and incarcerating them and separating them from their children, in fact, over 50% of those women that are incarcerated are mothers, which means it's a cycle now because children are raised in homes without parents. That's going to lead them to engage in criminal behavior in the future. I'm just statistically, this is true. Maybe we should address the causes that are driving that incarceration increase. And that is primarily earlier interventions to prevent victimization. Excellent. That's very, very, very helpful. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. This episode of Good is in the Details is brought to you by AdamWarning.com. Do you play bridge or do any of your friends play bridge? You've got to check out AdamWarning.com. They have everything you need for your next bridge party. Tallies, coasters, napkins, and smart color playing cards, which are also great for kids. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Lady Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcast and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Check us out on Instagram good is in the details pod or get in touch good is in the details pod at gmail.com if you'd like extra content and to join our book club go to patreon.com slash good is in the details we'll give you a shout out on the pod when you join thank you greg for this wonderful conversation until next time bye